Today we can conclude our Epiphany series, which we have called Because Church Ought to Be Big Enough for the Devoted and the Doubters. It's been a series looking at the Psalms chosen for the lectionary text for these four Sundays of Epiphany. And today we're asking how we might understand these strange words that God may judge the people. Strange words indeed. Let us seek wisdom this morning as we listen together. The first year that Amy and I were married, we bought a boat. Some say the best two days of a man's life are the day he buys a boat and the day he sells a boat. Now, one of the best days of my life was the day I bought our boat. I love everything about it. Even the hours spent towing and prepping and cleaning and repairing I think one of the worst days of my life will be the day I have to sell my boat, if that ever comes, God forbid. Our first boat was in 1965. It was an old Correct Craft Mustang. It had a Ford 289, that shade tree mechanic's dream engine in it. The Correct Craft boats are all inboard boats designed for three-event competition water skiing. And since we had the boat, I thought I ought to learn a little bit of something about skiing for sport, not just skiing for recreation. Even though I started tinkering in the slalom course 20 years ago, I'm still a beginner. But I guess it's like golf or knitting, painting or photography. Whatever gets into your blood just stays there. So now that Amy and I are empty nesters, I pulled out the old ski again and spent some days last summer on a private lake up near Lake Lure, training with one of the guys who skis on the men's professional tour. He is good. I'm still just trying to figure it out. There's six buoys in a slalom course. They start on the right, and as the boat enters the course, you pull out hard to the left now these correct craft boats now cost over $100,000 and they have 400 horsepower engines in them. So you're not gonna pull that boat off, off course as it maintains speed down the lake. You are pulling against unwavering perfection. But if you can turn around all six buoys at the end of the lake, you stop and you shorten the rope. It just gets harder and harder. With each full pass, the rope gets shorter, unless you're still trying to make it through the first pass at tournament speed. In analyzing a single pass in a slalom course, you can have a great entrance gate and turn wide around number one, but the boat never forgives, and the buoys are inflexible. As you move through the course, number two and number three and number four and number five, harder and harder to reach, it's like they are mocking you at every turn, snickering as you get farther and farther down course until finally you didn't have enough angle or you drop your head coming around one of the buoys or you break at the waist coming across the wake or you just don't have enough gusto to get there. Every time I ski a partial pass, I look down the course, stopping at the end, I look down the course, heaving and aching, and looking back down the course, I know I have been judged. 
You can almost hear the buoys laughing. And though my instructor, who gets paid to water ski, if you can imagine such a thing, and who skis into seven rope length takeoffs shorter than I, when he falls, he's been judged too. By the same standard, the speed and the distances never change. Those metrics are judge and jury and executioner. And at some point, no matter how good you are, the course always wins. Judgment gets a bad name because some people are judgmental, religiously and otherwise. But such haughty condescension really has nothing to do with judgment, which is the same thing as justice. If not for some standard by which to measure a bar, some parameters, limits, guides, without some way to judge, there wouldn't be any reason to get in the water to begin with. And without some moral principles, well, there's no telling just how far someone might fall. So today, every water skier in the world, every slalom skier in the world is judged by Nate Smith or Regina Jacques. Every hitter judged by Barry Bond or The Babe. Every volleyball player is judged by Kerry Walsh Jennings. Every singer by Luciano Pavarotti or Jesse Norman. And in every arena, even the greatest of all time are judged by the course, the court, the boundaries, the guidelines, or by some ethereal standard of beauty that cannot be quantified but can be measured by experience. And the psalmist said, God calls the heavens above and to the earth that God may judge the people. Across this wide world, I'm willing to say from one side of the universe to the other, there is justice, mercy, grace, goodness, kindness, beauty, love. We are judged and we should want to be. Our psalm today is Psalm 50. I'll read just the first six verses to you. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and does not keep silence. Before God is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around. God calls to the heavens above and to the earth that God may judge the people. Gather to me my faithful ones. That's how the judgment starts. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare God's righteousness for God is judge. 
The title of my short sermon today is Setting the World Right. 9-11 was God's judgment on the United States of America, just as this COVID-19 pandemic is a global judgment of condemnation. God is trying to get our attention, and if you don't believe me, just Google it. Or tune into any number of pulpits this morning to get it confirmed. Preacher after preacher is laying this pandemic squarely at the feet of God, who is always judging us and condemning us. I think those preachers may be laying this pandemic on God's time and God's conscience because there are a lot of preachers that are very well versed in judgment. They've been so accustomed to condemning folks for so long, denouncing them in the name of God, that it's just natural to assume that God judges the same way that we do. Preachers judge for the color of skin, the gender of body, the orientation of sexuality, the situation of marital status, you name it, they have a judgment for it. And it almost always is used to keep people out. Did you hear the psalmist? Gather to me, my faithful ones. Perhaps that's precisely how so much negative judgment got assigned to God in the first place because human beings are so good at being judgmental, we just assume we inherited the characteristic from God. Frederick Beatner says, we are all of us judged every day. We are judged by the face that looks back at us in the bathroom mirror. And in so doing, we are often our own worst critic and our own worst enemy. Was it the church? Was it people of faith that gave judgment such a bad name and blamed it all on God? I found one commentary that said evangelical Christians and, and others as well often focus on the idea of God's judgment as a terribly frightening event that will bring about the end of the world or condemn people to hell for their misdeeds. But C.S. Lewis notes that when Jesus talked about judgment, he tended to paint a very different picture. He painted a picture of judgment, the type that is reflected in the Psalms, justice in the eyes of Jesus. When you go back and look at his teachings, justice is about setting the world right. What if we understood judgment to mean that we were measured, looked upon, sized up, evaluated, appraised, and judged by how, by how we use our power to make things right. Instead of judging to keep people out, what if judgment was reserved for inclusion, welcome, and love? Beatner goes on to say that we also are judged by the faces of the people we love, 
in the faces and lives of our children and by our dreams. If we were to hold to an understanding of some kind of final judgment that stemmed from God that I grew up very afraid of, well then ultimately that final judgment would be saying that we will be judged by love itself if we understand God to be love. It's just funny that when I hear the word God and judgment, loving isn't what has been offered to me throughout my life. It's a wonderful twist on judgment. That kind of judgment should be something that we revel in and not fear, something we look forward to and not dread, something that we could lean into and not shy away from. We are constantly trying to measure up. We claim to be followers of the way of Jesus, and that is a very tall order. We often don't get it right. We frequently fall short. We all too often miss the mark. Perhaps that is why confession is so important. Not as something that God needs or God requires, but perhaps confession is necessary for ourselves, for us to recognize and admit that we are not always living up to who God created us to be. And in that confession, even then, from God, we receive the blessing of pardon and a reminder that we are loved unconditionally and a promise of peace that then propels us to go back to work at setting the world right. We've messed up judgment. Judgment is love. So let us then be judged by how well we love. Let us be judged by how compassionately we live. Let us be judged by how thoughtfully we encounter the world. Let us be judged by how considerately we treat others. Let us be judged by how lavishly we tend to those in need. Let us be judged by how hospitably we offer welcome. And let us be judged by how graciously we forgive, even forgiving ourselves. That's the kind of judgmental God that makes much more sense if God is indeed love. So let us go then and judge likewise. May it be so. Amen.